1990, Catherine Coulson became an international cult icon as the Log Lady in the groundbreaking television series, Twin Peaks. But who was the woman who brought the Log Lady to life? Who was the woman who triumphed on stage, screen, behind the camera and in life, who 25 years later fought off a terminal illness just long enough to play the Log Lady one last time for one of the world's greatest directors, her lifelong friend, David Lynch? I think we both knew it was the last time we were going to talk to each other. Why was shooting these final scenes so important to them? David, if you're going to do this thing, you better do it now. And you better do it down here, because she's not going anywhere. It was a powerful night. Today, we're inviting you to join us in making a feature-length documentary, I Know Catherine, the Log Lady, because the show must go on. So we're talking with Richard Green and Peter Dom, who are working on this campaign to do I Know Catherine, the Log Lady documentary. Hi, Richard and Peter. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Great. Hey, Ben and Brian. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. So how did you guys come up with this idea to do a documentary on Katherine Coulson? Well, I had done one about Jack Nance about 17 years ago now. It's called David Lynch Presents I Don't Know Jack. And Catherine was instrumental in getting that one off the ground, getting it made. We had met when I was 20 on my... Uh, we're kind of part of a large theatrical family, people who were in various theater companies in the the early 70s, even the late 60s, when Catherine started up in San Francisco. And once I heard that she passed, I just, I, I was so fascinated that she died four days after shooting her log lady scenes, a character that was dying. It just mm -hmm. surprised me. I just thought, there's something here. This is really interesting. And I thought, oh, maybe we could do another documentary. It wasn't until I interviewed David for over an hour, maybe the best interview I've ever been a part of, so just telling and he was so animated and so passionate about it and so it felt like it was really important for him to help celebrate her to let people know who she was that convinced me and the interview was so interesting whenever i showed it to anybody i just had, had people on board we, we started picking up steam pretty quick you can see the promo you see a tiny bit of david lynch but i would think people would want to support this campaign just so you get to see a lot more of the interview with david lynch i mean that's really exciting to hear what he has to say you have no idea. <laughs> the interview is so fascinating in and of itself. We've only used little tiny snippets of it. It's uh, it's pretty great. It's funny. I did a, an evening session. It was like a, a presentation on Sunday night. And Sabrina Sutherland, who is uh, executive producer on you know the new Twin Peaks on The Return, was there. And I had to check with her about this because we're both on stage talking. But I said something about it being such an unusually intimate interview. And she went, oh, yeah. She was aware of it. I think everybody realizes this is something that David doesn't do quite this way very often, where he just really opened up just personally on an emotional and, and artistic basis. It was great. When I watched it, there were like five to ten stories that I hadn't heard before. And I have read and heard almost every <laughs> interview so far. So uh, Richard managed to get a lot more stories out of David than anyone else before. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. I don't know that he's ever been actually interviewed directly about Catherine, and certainly not since she passed has he really sat down to do this interview. And interestingly enough, I don't want to get too much into what David says. He says it so much better than I can paraphrase it. But at one point in the interview, this is, you know, we're talking 45 minutes in, and, and I say to him, I said, I'm not hearing a lot of sadness when you talk about Catherine. Are, are you upset? Is this a grieving time? And he says, well, she's never really gone. So this taps into his philosophy, but also his feeling about Catherine. And I have to tell you, since we started this project, there are moments uh, when I feel like there's a presence around me pushing me in a particular direction or another, which I find fascinating. That's, uh, that may be Catherine as well. Yeah, that's cool. And so you, you get the blessing of David Lynch. Where do you go from there? I had been working with a guy named Bill Haugsey, who is an Academy Award nominee for a film called Hoop Dreams as an editor years ago. Um, and also lived with Catherine. They were together. They were going to get married. Uh, they lived together for four years. And Bill, when I first started doing this, well before the interview with David, Bill wanted to, was very involved, wanted to direct it. I was a little bit hesitant only because I felt that maybe he had a, a, too much of a personal point of view, see the broader picture that I was starting to see of Catherine. And we did some interviews with some really great people, some of whom I want to go back and talk to again, and, and we also have some great material from them. It wasn't until Bill felt like maybe he couldn't tell the story that, that I was seeing 
and he stepped away that I decided let's do the interview with David. Once we did the interview with David and I realized how intense that night when they shot those scenes for Twin Peaks The Return, how intense that was. And there are things about it people do not know. Uh, mm. Many things about it people do not know, like where it was shot, like where David was when it was shot. I got so fascinated that I arranged through one of our producers, Jenny Sullivan, to go up to Ashland, Oregon, where Catherine had lived for over 25 years, or 24 years, I guess. Uh, she did 22 seasons at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I went up to Ashland. I reassembled the entire crew that was there the last night in Catherine Colson's living room. Wow. Uh, the house has been sold, but the woman that was it was sold to was a great friend of Catherine Joy. And we went and reassembled the people that were there that night in that living room. And I interviewed each of them about the evening. And it was amazing oh. and emotional. Imagine not even being a fly on the wall because every person there had a job, whether they were DP or assistant or producing or doing sound. Imagine being in a room where two great artists that have been friends for over 45 years come together to work together on the most important role in Catherine's life, certainly, and maybe one of the most philosophically illustrative roles of David's career mm -hmm. in terms of how he writes, what he puts into Catherine's mouth, what ideas are, are put into Twin Peaks through Catherine. To watch the two of those people work together when one of them is still in Washington and the other one is dying of cancer. Yeah. She passed four days later. This was their last conversation. The stories that the people that were there that night tell are fascinating. And now, um, I've never interviewed Sabrina Sutherland. I just met her on Sunday night. She very much wants to be interviewed for this film, which excites me. Yeah. She wants to talk about the other side. I have interviews now with Catherine's family and friends who came together in Ashland weeks before this happened to make sure she could stay alive long enough to do it. Sabrina has the other side of the story, what it was like up in Washington on the set as they're trying to figure out how to make this happen and what information they had and how slow the information was coming. Because although Catherine Coulson was the most authentic person you could want, she was a professional actress. Mm -hmm. She could lie like hell. <laughs> and she was lying to David up until days uh, before they shot about how ill she was and whether she'd be able to do this. They were talking about hospital planes. It was amazing. And that story in and of itself is a fascinating film. But when you put it in the context of the rest of her life, I'm looking forward to seeing this film, much less cutting it. Richard, I haven't really introduced you that you're actually the director of this project. Can you share with us other people who are involved with this? Yes. We have three executive producers. One is Donna Dubain, who is also one of Catherine's oldest friends, along with Jenny Sullivan. Jenny Sullivan met Catherine at San Francisco State, as did Donna Dubain. And this is back in the late 1960s, when San Francisco State University was the epicenter of hippies and, you know, counterculture in this country. That's when they all met and formed this theater company. So Donna Dubain is one of our executive producers. Bill Haugsey, who I mentioned before from Hoop Dreams, is another executive producer. Jenny Sullivan is one of our producers. Oh, another executive producer is a, a young man named Marlon Sandlin. Really supportive, interesting, fascinating guy who's come in. He's the last one to join us uh, on our core team and has been just amazing. We have a bunch of different associate producers. We have uh, Cam Dexter, co-producer, who's done a lot of films, both as a co-producer and as an assistant director. We've got Amanda McHugh, also a filmmaker with a, a wonderful project about Christmas and Christmas trees, or actually about Christmas trees that uh, she's working on. And then, of course, we have uh, one of my newest best friends in the whole world, somebody I think I'll probably know for the rest of my life, and that's Peter Dom, who has come in on this campaign as content strategist and artistic art director for this campaign, whose contacts, whose perspective, whose talent 
and whose vast knowledge of Twin Peaks makes him essential for me as a director to want by my side when we're moving forward into the feature film. So Peter's coming aboard as a co-producer along with Cam Dexter. So we have two really, really confident people in that position. A bunch of really wonderful associate producers, some of whom have been working with us for a while. Logan Heftel, brilliant cat, who's developed a company called History of Cool with me over the years. History of Cool is actually producing this film. Logan, uh, just as a, a side note, interesting, interesting fellow, great singer-songwriter. We met, I guess, about seven or eight years ago now. One of our good friends, Maggie Rowe, who was directing a film called Bright Day, it was about Pyrosphere, which is a make-believe religion. It's a, a satire on religion. And to show what a good writer this woman is, she is currently on the writing staff of Arrested Development. Wow. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So she was reshooting some scenes for this satirical religious piece that Logan did the music for called Bright Day. And she, she was shooting them at the home of Bill Maher, who I'm sure we all recognize as being... Uh, just you know real time and yeah. just great comedian great satirist and commentator so that's where i met logan heftel he was working at the time with a, fel a fellow named taylor negron who i had known for years if anybody's ever seen fast times in ridgemont high yeah. uh taylor negron was the pizza boy he was also the the lead nemesis in uh, the last boy scout and just a phenomenal career great writer great artist in general. Logan also has been working with Kelly Carlin. This is George Carlin's daughter for a number of years, podcasting and recording various kinds of shows. A lot of Kelly's shows were done at our studio at Next Step Studios before we moved here to the new cool studio uh, when we were on King's Road. Logan uh, also through Kelly, they wanted to release another George Carlin album and it was a little hard because he'd already passed. They hired Logan the Carlin Foundation, or the I guess the Carlin Trust, whatever it is, they hired Logan to go through every one of the tapes that George Carlin made and kept his notes, his shows, everything was all stored in boxes, and they were handed to Logan. I actually bought the machine that would transfer those cassette tapes to digital, and wow. it took over a year and a half, and they released an album of unreleased George Carlin material based on that. Logan is now working with the Comedy Museum out of New York, going through his notes and putting those together for various exhibits. So Logan is amazing and been really instrumental in every aspect of the Catherine Project, which we called it until we decided on the name, which is I Know Catherine the Log Lady. So those are the people that we're working with. I have a lot of, you know, just really fascinating and sort of high caliber advisors who keep me on the straight and narrow as well. And so, Peter, how did you get involved with this and what are you, what are you up to right now on this project? <laughs> Well, right now I'm, I'm, I'm following people on Twitter and uh, direct messaging <laughs> right now live. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I got on board actually at the end of, of December, I was, uh, was going to do like uh, an anniversary post on, on Jack Nance, what I always do on Welcome to Twin Peaks. I was just checking out what Richard had been up to. I was checking out his Facebook, I guess, because Richard was an executive producer on that film. And I came across this little rough video that he made and which was actually his very first cut for crowdfunding this film. I watched that and in that video, there was this really short scene of Catherine on the bed hmm. uh, surrounded by her friends. And I was so immediately touched by that footage that I reached out to Richard and said, like, hey, I, I want to help you with this project. I don't know in what capacity I will be involved, but I, I you, you got my full support. Yeah, sure. actually said, I will not sleep until you get this project funded. And I can promise you, he has not slept in weeks. Oh, I believe it. Back then, I was more thinking like I will social media posts and, and help with that. But of course, as, as soon as we started talking and having our almost daily phone calls, we were bouncing ideas around and, and yeah, it became so much more than just marketing this this whole thing and, and launching this crowdfunding. It's uh, it's It's been a great journey, uh, exciting, thrilling, terrifying and all that. Uh, <laughs> but it has also put me, you know, the next chapter of my Twin Peaks journey, because after the return had, had stopped, I got into a black hole and I, I didn't really know what to do next. It was a lot of fun covering it for Welcome to Twin Peaks and, you know, doing all the theories and stuff and but i was ready to move on to something 
else. Little did I know it was going to be something Twin Peaks related again, but it was a gift from heaven that Richard embraced me and then we joined a team and uh, yeah, we're, we're this thing. Let me just add, letting Peter join the team is not an accurate statement. <laughs> Uh, if anybody has been responsible for the quality, the consistency, and the visual look of this crowdfunding campaign, which has been, by the way, roundly praised by everyone. We've got an enormous amount of press. Everybody at Kickstarter, Liz Cook Moe and David Nin, who just left Kickstarter, is now at Kino Lorber doing publicity for their, their wonderful documentaries. Everybody involved in this project will tell you that Peter is just an essential part of it. And it's his creativity and is also his knowledge technically, but it's also his passion about this and sensitivity to the fans. I mean, one of the, the things about this project, which we hope to open up a little farther this week in terms of who it gets out to, is that Catherine was more than the log lady. Although you don't need to be any more than the log lady. That's more than any of us may ever achieve in our lives. But she had an incredible life outside of this character, a mainstay of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, 22 seasons of theater. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, one of the preeminent American actresses on camera, big screen and little, but also behind the camera. Not very many people know that Catherine was one of the first women in the Cinematographers Guild and worked wow. on films with people like Cassavetti's great independent films, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, but also on Modern Romance and The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. This was an extraordinarily accomplished woman who, despite how busy she was, would stop and not only give you the time of day, but help you fix your watch. You're just about halfway there at 10 days to go. Maybe people need to understand, like, you know, it, the goal is 250000 Can you explain, like, where does that money go toward? I get 230000 for me to go on my next vacation, and we're going to put 20 <laughs> into the movie. Oh. Uh, if you want me to break it down, I will, actually. I just did this the other day for someone. It's very expensive to raise money on Kickstarter. You have to come up with 8%. That's 5% goes to Kickstarter, and then there's 3% uh -huh. fee for all the credit cards. Uh. So you're literally... Before you even start, you're you're taking 8% off the top. But then there's all of the shooting that we have done prior to this. Remember, we've got maybe 25, 30 hours already in the can shooting because we shot up at Ashland for five days. I interviewed maybe 15 actors or, or our team interviewed because I found when I got up to Ashland, there's this very, very wonderful actor-director named Christopher Liam Moore. And Christopher helped us set up everything in Ashland. And when it came down to interviewing all of these actors who had worked with Catherine, Chris asked if, if I wanted him to do the interviews. And I thought, you know what? He knows so much more about these people and about these plays that I can feed him some questions, but let him, who already has this relationship. And I thought, let's see how that goes. And of course, you know, I'm an actor, so I can say this. We're all emotional. You scratch an actor and you know, a hundred years worth of tears will come out. So it was wonderful to watch Christopher relate to people he's known for years and talk about this shared love affair they all had with Catherine because everybody that I spoke to or have heard speak about her in Ashland loved this woman. You hear people constantly talking about, you know, she felt like she was my best friend and they know that they weren't the only best friend that she had, but mm -hmm. they felt that way. And that, I think, was was not a trick, but it's a knack of how Catherine operated. She was fully present, fully engaged. When you talked to her, you felt like you were the only person in the world. So anyway, we shot up in, in Ashland for five days. So that cost us a considerable amount of money. So there's money out, and there's also some deferrals for all those crews. Everybody did it. You know, I said, when we raise our money, you'll get your day rates. There's a, a lot of our money is going to pay back. The, the money that we've already put out and to the, the deferments for people who have been working on this project on less than subsistence wages mm. have some deferments that they'll get paid once we get in. So after all of the, the money is paid back that's been put out so far, the deferments are paid, the commissions are paid, and Kickstarter is paid, it leaves us a little over $100,000. And that has got to cover the editorial process, which means an editor, an assistant editor, some of my time. It's got to cover the rights to Twin Peaks. We're buying from CBS and Showtime actual footage from the, the series that will be critical, yeah. both to the feeling of the story, but also because there are 26 Log Lady intros that were done by David and Catherine mm. after the first two seasons. Can't prove this yet, but one of my goals for the, the process, the post-production process, is I want to dig in because I think that there is 
it's not like hidden like a code book or anything, but I think within those 26 Log Lady intros lies, if not David's philosophy of life, certainly the intersection of David's philosophy and Catherine's philosophy. Certainly a look and a way of approaching life that reflects and amplifies what the Log Lady brought to each of these episodes that she appeared in. So getting that footage and being able to bring that into the film and work with it will be fascinating. Yeah, Plus, we've yeah, got a lot yeah. more a lot more people to shoot. We wanted the whole side of her career, the cinematography side, has just been scratched. So we want to interview Fred Elms and you know a bunch of other people. There's Nicholas Meyer who directed Star Trek: Wrath of Khan, and I keep hearing rumors. I don't have any confirmation of this, but supposedly Catherine, who was pulling focus on that picture, and I don't know if your your audience is aware that a cameraman or the DP will often stand somewhere else looking at a monitor because now we have video assist, the camera operator will be sitting behind the camera, turning it on, moving it, panning it, zooming it, and in front of the camera, right next to the lens, is the first AC. Hmm. That's the person who pulls the focus. So if, if she were shooting William Shatner on the set of Star Trek Wrath of Khan, and he moves two inches to the right or left or pulls back, that focusing, that focus pulling, is happening by the first AC. So the closest person to the actor on a movie set is the first AC. That's the role that Catherine played. Wow. And I keep hearing stories. It's They're not confirmed yet, so I don't want to speak out of the wrong end of my uh, anatomy. But I keep hearing stories that Catherine had a real significant role in that movie, that her presence on the set in discussions between the director, the actors, the camera people, she had a real strong voice and and maybe influence on the whole tenor and mood of that that picture. So I'm interested in that. We'll need to, to hire a good composer, and it's interesting. Once we put up the Kickstarter page, I had maybe like 13 different composers come to me through Kickstarter saying that they're really interested in the movie. Nice. Um, and so post-production and color correction and everything else. And then we've got to distribute it. That's a whole other ball of wax that's not considered in our budget. Can I add just one more thing about budget? Sure. I made a decision early on, and uh, I actually asked David about this at the conclusion of our interview that day at his studio. 10% of every dollar that comes in above the cost of the movie. So we'll raise our Kickstarter money. We'll finish the movie. 10% of every dollar that comes in after that will go to the David Lynch Foundation, which trains people with PTSD, vets of PTSD, at-risk kids, battered women. It trains them in meditation techniques to help them get through their lives and, and improve their lives. 10% will go to the Catherine Colson Welcome Fund, which was set up not by me, but independently by the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is a nonprofit. Catherine was famous for being able to be the person who you'd go to if you needed something in Ashland. Mm -hmm. If an actor came and, and started working for the company, the theater company, and didn't uh, know where to get a dentist appointment or had to raise a couple of dollars to get home for a family emergency, Catherine would be the one they would go to. So they've set up the Catherine Colson Welcome Fund to help people that are coming and acclimating to working at, at, at Ashland at the OSF. 10% of every dollar will also go to the Catherine Coulson Welcome Fund. An additional 10%, every dollar, 10 cents of every buck, will go to Catherine's daughter, Zoe, mm -hmm. um, just so that she can you know, continue to improve her life. Although her family, both Catherine and other aspects of her family, have been very generous. And, and I know that she's well cared for and, and I'm sure taking good care of herself. She just recently got married to a really good man. Mm -hmm. So they're doing really, really well. But it'll be nice that Catherine's direct you know, greatest love of her life will be benefiting from any profits that are made on this film as well. How nice is that? That's very oh, that's nice. Really something. And I, I want to let people know that uh, this is all or nothing, right? I mean, if you guys don't make your goal, it's not like you guys keep the money. There's no money. I mean, right? Right. It is, uh, it is an all or nothing. So we are halfway. We've got 10 days to raise $125,000. And it sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but we've already raised $125,000. Mm. And I don't think that everybody knows about this project. Certainly not everybody in the Twin Peaks community and certainly not everybody in Ashland and in the, the, the women's movement, the world of the women's movement, which is where we're pushing ourselves to try and, and reach some people in this coming week because we think that Catherine is an unsung hero of the women's mm. movement. This is a person well before Me Too that 
pushed her way past the barriers in a number of different areas of life, including the male-dominated world behind the camera that she, again, as I said, was one of the first people in the union. So, yeah, we've got a long way to go and we get nothing, absolutely zero. They don't even give us like a dollar to to buy an aspirin for banging our head against the wall for two hours after we've, <laughs> we've failed to do this. So I'll throw this to Peter, but, uh, you know, I would think people who are listening would do this just in honor of Catherine. But if that isn't going to motivate you, Peter, there are, are a lot of kind of rewards you get for uh, making a donation. Can you share what the different uh, rewards are? Yeah, we worked really, really hard to offer tons of value to everyone who pledges, like even even smaller amounts. Like we worked with Johnny Jewel of Chromatics and he was super interested in, in helping us out. And he created this little vignette, like a five track EP of music that he was working on while he was working on Twin Peaks The Return, but some music that wasn't used in the series, but has the same sort of vibe and mood. And he created a very unique Log Lady tribute, like a five-track EP that everybody will receive if they pledge $25. And there's there's tons of other stuff in that $25 reward as well. But if you move up to the $35, you get both the film, which we're still making, but you also get access to I Don't Know Jack, which is a the documentary about Jack Nance. I mean, everybody should watch that documentary because it's 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 one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever seen personally. And part of that reward is also that you get access to the extras, which haven't been published online ever before. No. I think, and, and there's a really there's a really cool feature with uh, Kimmy Robertson, but I, I I won't go into that. You you should check out the Facebook Live we did on Saturday, the Q and A, and there's a little more talk about that. Also, part of the the rewards are an unreleased song by Silencio, who of course every Twin Peaks fan knows they're just you know kick ass um there's a song by uh uh, christabel she recently recorded a cover of sycamore trees in the studio and she was so generous to offer that song to us as part of our 50 dollar reward package which also includes all of before mentioned rewards i'll just skip a few but we got some really awesome stuff uh at some higher price levels like you can dedicate a tree in a very special log lady grove is a collaboration with three people if you uh, pledge for 150 dollars you get a certificate and you can dedicate one tree in the grove or you can dedicate more to a person in your life to yourself to you know a a good cause Mm -hmm. have it on that certificate and then know that out there there's a tree in the log lady grove that belongs to you that's there because of you now we're talking about trees we can introduce the answer log, although we do not introduce the log, but we can introduce the answer <laughs> log, which, which is just the, the most crazy thing you, you'll ever see. Yeah, you can ask a yes or no question and it will respond with a David Lynch approved answer and it's going to help you in your life. It's going it's to solve all your life's mysteries. It's going nice. it, to, you really need to have one of those on your mantelpiece because it's it's a truly unique thing and i think it's going to be exclusive to this campaign so grab one now before your opportunity is gone um, and each one is numbered by the way awesome yeah it's 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 just amazing and that's something that david lynch personally was involved with but that's that's as much as i can tell you it's well i can tell you more i can tell you that that i never thought he'd approve it <laughs> i thought he's never gonna let us do this i really did you know the original log has been repaired once by david's father with Catherine went to David's father to get the log repaired. There's a story there that David tells in the movie. David is very particular about this log, and I think uh, rightfully so. Oftentimes, we as the public watching a movie, there'll be some jacket or the ruby slippers or a log that has great significance for us as the audience. But we don't know. There are seven of them, and they're, you know, they, they're treated like just props on the set. Not so with the log. There was and is and has been only one log. And that log would fly first class. There were all sorts of amazing stories about Catherine moving the log when she went around the world and around the country to Twin Peaks events because she took the actual log with her. So David is very, very 
guarded and careful about the log. And I thought he'll never let us do the answer log. And the answer log, <laughs> you know, there's a series of answers that can be found within the answer log. They're a finite number. When we told David about the idea and showed him pictures of the prototype, his response was, I approve it, but I want to approve the answers. Wow. And Peter, can I say more? No. These answers were more than approved by David. That's all I'll say. The only more you'll get is they were more than approved by David Lynch. This Thursday we're doing the magician from Mulholland Drive, who happens to be a good friend of mine, uh, will be reading, answering questions through the log on Thursday at 2 o'clock Pacific time, I think. Peter, is that correct? Two, yeah, we're, we're yeah, two Pacific. That's the plan. Two Pacific, five o'clock Eastern, and I can't tell you what time in Shanghai. No, I banda, and yet we hear a band. Play the magician in Mulholland Drive. Can you tell us the story of how you got that part? Do you want the long version or the short version? They're I... both about six months long. Uh... <laughs> Whatever you want to share, we got the time. When I was eighteen, which was a, a long time ago. I moved to San Francisco. I had been writing songs, and I also wanted to get back into acting. And I ended up at a thing called the Dickens Fair. I don't know if anybody's ever been to a Renaissance Fair. Mm -hmm. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So in San Francisco, the people who started the original Renaissance Fair was actually started a few years before that even in the late 60s here in L.A. for KCRW, a local radio station. And then it was moved up to San Francisco as well. And then they instituted this Dickensian Fair called the Dickens Fair. And instead of it being medieval times, it was Dickensian times and everybody ran around in funny outfits and bad English accents. But it was really fun. And I was, had gotten a job as an actor in a children's theater company, performing for children, really, really low pay, carrying around, playing six roles and carrying around all the equipment because I was a kid. And they weren't going to pay me for rehearsal. And my brother was visiting me in San Francisco. I just moved there. And I saw this Dickens Fair and I called them and I said, you know, can I come in and, and get a job? And the woman said, yeah, you can audition. So I figured, what am I going to do? What can I do? And I said, I know, I'll make up songs. <laughs> pretty stupid and i went in i went to the thrift store and i bought a, a sports coat that was too long and i took the the front of the coat and tucked it back so it kind of looked like tails right and i took a pair of woolen gloves and i cut the fingers off and i put on a scarf that my girlfriend had and i had like a soft cap and i went into this woman her name was carol lafleur and i auditioned for her by singing this song that i had written before it wasn't an improvised song it sounded a little gilbert and sullivan i don't know if i can remember it mm. tis the duty of a bureaucracy to support the local aristocracy to keep the nobles in the pink and the rebels in the clink and appease the idle peasants curiosity in the time of war the nobility <laughs> call our nation's youth to mobility as they plot at home at night our youngsters go and fight tell me whose is the response and she said, okay, you're hired. And I said, great, great, how much? And she said, oh, you can pass your hat. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't have a hat. And she gave me this big top hat and set me loose uh, in the Dickens Fair, which was basically, if you ever go to San Francisco, there's a shopping center right next to Ghirardelli Square, right in front of the Hyde Street Pier where all the ships are. And that shopping center is the cannery. And before it was the cannery, it was a cannery. And it had been lying dormant for 100 years. And they built this Dickensian world, this dark world of cobbled streets and tiny little places in there. So the doors open. And I walk up to the first guy. And I say, hello, sir. My name is Wilbur W. Williams. And I can sing a song about anything in the world. And give me a subject. And he gives me a subject. And I try and improvise the melody and the lyric. And it was awful it was so bad the guy said man that was the worst thing i ever heard i'm not going to give you any money but i'll buy you a beer you're going to need a beer Aww. so he bought me a beer i needed the money and i thought well maybe if i drop the melody and just do the lines the lyrics i can get through and i found that i had this ability to speak in rhyme and i made a lot of money that night for me in those days making 35 dollars in cash this was the early 70s. Minimum wage was a dollar an hour, probably. I was doing great. I had a bunch of cash at the end of the night. So 
I'm, I'm getting way deep into the story. Long story short, I started my career doing improvised verse in the streets of San Francisco. That's what hooked me up with John Acorn and Cab Covey and eventually Donna Dubain and Catherine and Jack. After a year or two of doing this, my theater company started getting successful. I was 20, and I thought, if I'm ever going to go fulfill the hippie dream of hitchhiking around Europe and North Africa and seeing if what life brings to me, this adventure, if I'm ever going to do it, I better do it now because my career is starting to take off. So I came down to L.A. on my save $600 doing street theater. I left my dog with the theater company up in San Francisco, and I was going to hitchhike to New York and get on a boat and work my way across to Europe so I could save this $600 and get through a year, right? Well, while I was in L.A., I won $600 at the racetrack my first time and stayed in L.A. for an extra two weeks and bought a plane <laughs> ticket to London. Wow. And two of my partners from San Francisco came down to audition for this Mayfair Music Hall where they were doing English-style music hall. Of course, I did my thing at the Dickens Fair, so I, my thing had an English accent, right? And I ended up on the opening bill of the Mayfair Musical. I stayed in L.A. another 12 weeks. One of the people who also got on the bill, one of my partners, Frankie Phipps Wilson, who's in Eraserhead, was hanging out with Jack and Catherine up in Beechwood Canyon. And I would start hanging out there. And that's where David was. They were all getting ready to shoot Eraserhead. Jack and David really liked to drink. I didn't drink. They would come to the Mayfair Musical and I got free drinks. So they had those free drinks. So David would come and watch me a couple of nights a week doing this improvised verse. And let me tell you what the stage looked like. And you tell me if it reminds you of anything. Mm -hmm. The stage has a large, tall, dark red velvet curtain. Mm -hmm. To the left and to the right of the stage, above the stage, were special box seats where the chairman, in this case, lived. Okay, so cut 20 years, 25 years later, Jack Nance dies, and there's a memorial in Pasadena, which is a part of Los Angeles. And I go, all, all my friends go to the, the memorial for Jack Nance, and I had not seen David in many, many years. I had been at the first screening of Eraserhead ever. Uh, I was at CalArts. When I came back from Europe, I went to CalArts, and I got a call from Donna, who was working at AFI and helping David and, and Catherine, that David wanted to invite me to the screening, and I went, and it was this, at, at the Greystone Mansion, which is where AFI was and where Eraserhead was shot, in an underground screening room, hmm. uh, stones all over the place. And I had driven down from CalArts, which is about 45 minutes away from Los Angeles, maybe a little longer. I guess I can talk about it. It's legal in California. I was stoned off my ass on marijuana at the time. <laughs> I smoked a huge joint driving down to see this. Now, let me just step back a second and tell you that the David that I met in those days wore 30s-style ties and a snap-brim hat and dressed and kind of talked and looked a little bit like Jimmy Stewart. Mm -hmm. So I was absolutely convinced that Eraserhead was going to be a movie kind of like one of those Capra Wonderful Life films, you know, that are light and funny and heartwarming and charming. And so I got really stoned and went to the Greystone Mansion off to go see this light comedy with my friend Jack, directed by my pal David. And uh, I was deeply traumatized <laughs> watching Racerhead. I was stoned and expecting something different, and it freaked the hell out of me it was just it was i didn't know what to say i i literally didn't know what to say to david it wasn't even being it was wasn't like this is a bad movie and i don't know how to tell the director i didn't know what this was this was to me like i had been whisked away given lsd and put into psychological warfare that was such a terrifying experience for me it was amazing so now 30 years later i'm at jack nance's memorial and i run into dave and he says richard how are you good good how are you he says you know i remember you and i i remember the mayfair music hall but i don't remember how you knew jack and Catherine." so i tell him how i met the people that introduced me to jack and Catherine. i was doing that improvised verse act in san francisco and the casting director from the dickens fair this woman who had given me that first job went off and did another fair for another company and invited me to do my act and said that she'd pay me another $35 a day if I had another character. And I said, well, you know, I used to be a magician when I was a kid and I wanted to build the 15-foot gallows and how about I do an evil magician act? So I told David about building a 15-foot gallows and being the great Abraxor, this evil magician. 
We all go into the memorial. It's amazing and wonderful and heart-rending and funny. And of course, at the very end, this big fat woman sings, which, you know, it wasn't over until the fat lady sang and she sang. And afterward, I gave David a double cassette of book on tape that I had made about trying to start the new swing music movement in the early 80s in London, in L.A. This was a two cassette thing, and it had a whole bunch of swing music on it. And I gave it to him. That was it. A year later. I'm getting ready to direct the story of how that swing movement came about. Seven Years Zigzag is a told entirely in narrated rhyme with original music telling the story of those moments when I tried to start the new swing movement. It took seven years to fail. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we decide, a young man is working for me. He's 23 years old. He hears that I know Jack Nance. He hears me talking to Catherine on the phone. And he says, boy, that'd make a good documentary. And I think, well, we can shoot this while we're shooting the other one and let this kid direct it. And we'll call it, I don't know, Jack, friend of mine, John Acorn, came up with the title. So now it becomes like really important that David's involved, right? So we call Catherine and we ask Catherine if she'll reach out to David and if David will do an interview and help us get this movie made. And then about three weeks later on my birthday, I get a phone call from Catherine. And she's not calling me. She's looking for Donna DeBain. She didn't call to wish me happy birthday. She's Aww. looking for Donna. And the next day, I come into the studio, and I say, hey, what was Catherine calling about? Is David going to help us out? And she said, well, David's office called Catherine in Oregon. They're looking for a guy we all used to know who was really good with words and used to be a magician. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Everybody in my office is going, who the hell could this be? Nobody could figure it out, and I couldn't figure it out. An hour or two went by, and then I thought, you know, I gave him that book on tape, and when I told him, I told him about that magic act. You know, I said, hey, I wonder if it could be me. And they went, oh, my God, of course, of course. <laughs> and, uh, no, no, of course it couldn't be. So then they call. In, we're in Hollywood, right? We're in West Hollywood. They call from West Hollywood to Ashland, Oregon to talk to Catherine. Catherine calls Hollywood. Hollywood, two hours later, the phone rings. In runs the 23-year-old kid who's destined to, to direct, I don't know, Jack, Chris Levins. In he runs and says, Richard, David Lynch is on the phone. His office? No, no, David Lynch is on the phone. Ah. He's all, he's flustered as hell, right? He's like a big Eraserhead fan. And I pick up the phone, and it was David. But it was David that I remember from the early 70s. It was, hey, Richard, how you doing? I've been always wanting to work with you. I got this role for you. And, uh... There's more to the story, but that's it. I mean, I, I went to work on Monday. That is wow, that is uh, a great story. Great. Hearing you tell that story, I feel like you're the perfect <laughs> person to be doing this documentary yep. for Catherine. I mean, like, it is such a great story. And, and see that you have these connections with all these people. and it uh, Comes full circle. I would like to just tell you why I do think that I'm a good person to direct this documentary. Theater's a, a very unusual and wonderful kind of uh, set of skills and profession. It's a really interesting art. As a songwriter, as a painter, as a, many different artists, writers can work on their own. Theater people really need a crowd. You need other characters. Even in one-man plays, need directors and lighting people and front-of-house people and ushers and stage managers. It's a very collaborative form. Hmm. And... Because it, it takes place at night, when you grow up or, or, or come to, to adulthood in the theater, basically your social life is with the people that you're working with because everybody else is going out and doing stuff while you're on stage. And then you've been forming all night. You get off at 11 o'clock. You're high as a kite, you know, way awake. So we all theater people go out to dinner at 12 o'clock at night and don't go to bed till 2 in the morning. And then you get up for rehearsal the next the next day. So you tend to, to form these social groups amongst theater people because you're all on the same schedule probably not unlike soldiers feel close to each other when they're in a in, in a group together because they're living together you're eating together you're washing together you're changing together you're living you know experiencing the the success or failure of the project together as actors in a movie we all come and go, you know, I've worked with some great actors who I never met, you know, but we have scenes together, but we just never were on the set at the same time or in the recording studio. But in theater, everybody has to be there all the time. You have to work together. It becomes like a family. 
when I moved to San Francisco, I was pretty young. I was 18 when I started a theater company with people that were in their, their late middle 20s, 27, most of them. Catherine was a couple of years older than them, and they had been in a theater company previously. So as soon as we started our theater company, everybody that had been in the previous company was all of a sudden a part of our company. And we were doing larger shows. And it became a theatrical family. And for me, uh, you know, I, I love my parents, I love my, my family, but I, I was from a broken home. And that theatrical family, when I moved to San Francisco, was really important to me. Mm. And now, all these years later, that theatrical family still exists. Uh, it's half the people that are involved in this project are part of that theatrical family. Now it's more family-like than theatrical. We, we haven't done a play together in a long time, but everybody is still working in the business in various aspects. John Acorn teaches Commedia dell'arte and acts. Mm -hmm. Donna Dubain was a founding member of the Groundlings and is one of the official Spolin players, Viola Spolin, who invented theater games. Catherine, you know her career. You know Jack's career. Yeah. There's Neil Moran. There's Jenny, Jenny Sullivan, who's directed features, acted in series, and is one of the, the most sought-after theater directors of today. This, this group still exists doing this art, but the family aspect is very much there. But as you know, in any family, you're closer to some people than you are to other people. And I felt with both Jack and Catherine that they were like my cousins. Mm -hmm. I could go to them. Catherine was instrumental in, in a couple of different phases of my career. Without Catherine, we never would have done David Presents, I Don't Know Jack, never would have gotten off the ground. David Lynch wouldn't have found me. Had he not called Catherine, he would not have found me. Somebody mm -hmm. else would have played the magician. Yet we were cousins. You know, the last time I saw her was a long time ago. I didn't see her when she came down to L.A. Uh, subsequent to that. I saw her. She was at my house when after the memorial for Jack. She was at my house when she came to do her interview. It's the time I met the only time I met her daughter, Zoe. And then I saw her again at uh, the Twin Peaks Fan Festival that, that happened after Mulholland Drive. So it would have been 2001, yeah. I think. Two, probably. 2002. Okay. There's an old expression about you can't see the forest for the trees because, and I think that, that that expression means is you're in the middle of the forest. So you look around you and you just see a couple of trees. You don't see the whole forest. And many of the people that I've talked to from different aspects of Catherine's life thought that was most of her life. The people in, in Ashland, they knew about Twin Peaks, but they didn't really know that much about what she was doing in terms of fans and such. The people in Twin Peaks knew that she would go up there to Ashland and perform, but they didn't know that much about Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And very few people knew about her extensive work behind the camera, producing as well with some great producers. And hardly anybody outside of Ashland knew that she converted from Catholicism to Judaism, married a rabbi, and became the Rebetzin, which is basically the social director at a very prominent temple in Ashland, Oregon and was a, a community leader there. So I feel like being a cousin, I've got access to all these different family members and I can see the forest and the trees. Wow. And I'm, <laughs> you know, it's wonderful feeling because right now uh, people are getting behind us in a big way because we, in our, our campaign video, we talk about the different and disparate aspects of her life. But when I first started this, people didn't see it. They didn't understand. Now they do. And uh, I feel kind of vindicated and very excited about putting this piece together because this, this person deserves to be celebrated in the annals of America as one of the most successful artists of her generation. And because the log lady is a supporting role and not a hot young chick so that she would then go on to other movies. Nobody looked at the log lady and said, oh, I want her to star in this movie opposite, uh, you know, George Clooney. They were just moved by that character and yeah. that role. I feel like I can see the forest for the trees. I feel like I have access because I'm kind of a cousin in this family. And yet I was not one of those people that felt so close to Catherine and that I have my own story to tell. I My story is the story of being part of this family that didn't realize that in our mists was this great, great person. Because I do think that if we're successful with this film, and I don't mean with the crowdfunding campaign, we're gonna raise this money, I'm convinced we are. I believe that everybody out there is gonna find a way to help us. I've already put in 
half of, of the what came out of my house when I sold it. Mm -hmm. I'm in deep, and I think people are going to join me and, and get this thing funded. We've already raised so much, but I don't have a personal agenda to tell the story. I have a, a, a an agenda where I I feel sort of an obligation to both the rest of this theatrical family, but also to these fans who are coming to, to help put this person in the proper light that they deserve for this life. And if I was ever convinced of it, it was sitting and talking to David mm -hmm. and just how he feels about Catherine and how much respect and love and care and deep commitment he had to their friendship over a lifetime. Uh, if, if ever I do anything in this world well, it will be telling Dave the story of David's good friend. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. What do you think Catherine would think of a documentary being made of her? Well, that's a very interesting question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I started this was only a few months after she had passed. And I went to Donna Dubain, who produced, I don't know, Jack, and produced my film Seven Years Zigzag, that I, the first one I directed. And she thought, oh, I don't know. I don't I, It seems so soon, too soon, too soon. And I said, well... You know, Twin Peaks is going to be out in nine months, and maybe we can get funded because of that, and maybe we can get this thing out around the same time. It's We really should pursue it. Let me talk to some other people. Who can you put me in touch with? So everybody in the beginning was a little reluctant, and they were reluctant for two reasons. One, it was very raw to them. Losing Catherine was very hard for a lot of people. She was instrumental in their lives, just sort of a one of the pillars that kept people going. But they also were worried, what, well, what would Catherine think of this? And mm. Bill Haugsey, who was so close to her, they lived together, they almost married. He was, you know, kind of skeptical about whether this would work as a film. The things that started to convince me that Catherine would approve, when I called Bill Rausch, who is the artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, they have 22 seasons of Catherine on videotape. Wow. These are the great plays. And I said, Bill, if I could get my hands on that footage, we could tell the story in a way that's never been done before. We can look at someone's life and find the, the key epiphany moments, the, the moments when they're moved or when they've got strong choices, and then find moments in these great plays that relate and sort of start to amplify. We may be able to turn on a whole generation of Twin Peaks fans who've never been to the theater. We may be able to help them find the theater. And Bill said, wow, would Catherine love that? Yeah. Uh and I, I just want to say, I think she would approve, too. We got to interview her in July of 2015, mm -hmm. a few months before her passing. And she loved to talk about other things just than, than the log lady. She loved talking about her, the plays she was doing and being part of AD and, and just all the stuff she did. So I think she would love that you are doing this. So yeah. I'm so excited for you guys. And I think everybody listening, go and support this great campaign. I know Catherine.com. I know Catherine.com. I would just suggest everybody follows us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's all at LogLadyFilm. And keep an eye on the Kickstarter page as well, which we're constantly updating. And if you become a backer, you get every newsworthy fact first. So we treat our backers well. It has been an absolute joy for me over the last few weeks and few months to interact with the people who loved Catherine through, you know, Interviews like this, yeah. where you're talking to highly intelligent, committed people with wonderful lives who related this character and are involved with each other, with the character. Catherine adored her fans. And what I'm finding is, you know, this is not the crowd that follows uh, the deadheads. They're not <laughs> people around. These are intelligent, smart, accomplished people who are inspired by this character and by David Lynch's work. It's a high caliber of conversation. Mm -hmm that I've been having with people. And I'm just really, really grateful to have gotten in this far. I'm deeply committed to this project now, far beyond the idea of just getting it finished because I started it or another credit or even maybe even getting some of the money back that I've put in if we're successful. I'm well committed because it's touched my life talking to people like you guys and getting to know people like Peter Dom. It's just a really wonderful, wonderful world that the log lady has brought together. And thank you guys for the opportunity to, to be a part of it. You're thank welcome. you. Yeah. Thank you, Richard and Peter. Thank you so much. And there are a lot of wonderful Twin Peaks fans, truly the nicest people in the world. I mean, I just went to the Twin Peaks Fan Festival in Snoqualmie, and they were just lovely human beings. Once I went to this wonderful festival in London, I talked to David right before I left, and I said, what can I tell the fans? And he said, 
tell them there are still stories to tell.